You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Jean. This is the WFHB local news for Monday, August 7th, 2023. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on a canceled city council budget meeting from the media outlet's Morning Bulletin. Cancer does not discriminate. Cancer affects everyone. Who doesn't know someone who's had a cancer diagnosis? We believe that no one should face cancer alone. That's Stephanie Shelton from Cancer Support Community of Indiana. Shelton says 40,000 Hoosiers will be diagnosed with some form of cancer this year. She needs volunteers to help support people affected by cancer through local events and programs. Hear more later in the show on a new episode of Activate, but first your daily headlines. The Monroe County Justice Fiscal Advisory Committee met on July 31st. At this meeting, they discussed investments the county council can make to reduce the number of community members entering the justice system. So one of the biggest things that I think about is when we talk about diversion, I think we have to get to the root of the problem. We cannot, one of the 12 steps of trying to solve a problem is get into the root of it. And so I found this quote that was really interesting. And so it says, when solving problems, dig at the roots instead of hacking at the leaves. And I think that is really something that we're, we're trying to do, whether it's unintentional. We're trying to, all of us are trying to find a solution to the problem, but we really have to get to the core root of what that particular problem is. So um, as I had mentioned before, what are the issue and concerns? And the Eve Hill report uh, it was composed of lots of groups and organizations, a lot of social service programs, um, Monroe County government. This was done a few years ago prior to the administration of the Marte um, Sheriff administration. Um, and so there were lots of different things that were discussed. Lots of people were interviewed. And this is some of the things that were followed. Um, Participants felt that our jail had shifted costs to inmates for various supplies, programming, medication, um, and it also disparately negatively affected inmates with mental health, mental illness, and substance use disorder. And we also know in that report, too, that 75 and 80 percent of our inmates housed in our jail have mental illness disorder or substance use disorder. Another thing is participants also identified um, that prejudice against and assumptions about, sorry, I'm going to cancel my screen here, um, about individuals with SUD as well as systemic racism have led the public health and criminal justice system to emphasize criminalization and fail to prioritize treatment. Um, participants were also concerned that despite the growing evidence, that mental illness and SUD are treated health condition are treatable health conditions and not character flaws or serious threats to public safety. The justice system continues to focus on punitive responses to these conditions. Next, um, our county has implicit structural barriers such as high market rents, limited public transportation, 
and limited employment options. And what was also found as well, and we've also talked about several times in various meetings here, is some of our groups and social service organizations work in silos. We all have the same goal. We all want to help all of our community members. We definitely want to make sure that folks don't have to go back and continue to go back into the system. However, it seems to be that certain groups and organizations whether it is implicit or explicit, um, work in silos and not really together. Committee member Jennifer Crossley discussed possible solutions to reducing the number of people entering the county's justice system. So what can we do? Um, And this is the conversation that brings us to now. Um, We, again, county council has a fiscal responsibility Um, And we have heard through various program or um, presentations and um, other conversations, whether we all have had conversations with um, individuals with programs or just in general. We know that in Monroe County and in Bloomington that we have a desperate and desired need for more housing, more supportive housing and supportive housing. Um, could be more of a single housing or a family um, unit, but that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to terms and conditions of treatment or uh, a way of out of incarceration. Transitional housing, we heard that many different times that we are trying to, as people are trying to come out and go back into the world here and in our community, they need help. They have to have that transitional housing. And emergency housing, we saw that with the COVID-19 pandemic, where we did not have that housing that was readily available, and how that is a desperate need, and how that is definitely still a need now. Committee member Jennifer Crossley also proposed solutions such as supportive employment, family and peer support groups, and investing in community groups and organizations. During the meeting, Centerstone Adult and Family Services gave a presentation discussing their work in intervention services, addiction prevention, and psychiatric care. So what is the Stride Center? Um, It's a safe place for people to go, regardless of whether they have mental health or substance, 24-7 for 18 and older, can stay up to 23 hours, um, accessed by anybody, anytime. Uh, We don't turn anyone away unless, uh, you know, we need to send them to the hospital medically or there's some threat of of violence on their part. But we have a no-turn-away policy staffed by our crisis care staff and peers, uh, focus on DA escalation, harm reduction, and care connection. Um, Also in support with our mobile uh, response team, we have a mobile crisis team now that's available. And much of this is new since uh, Eve Hill did her report, you know, three years ago. So almost all of this is new. Um, Supported also by our rapid response treatment team, um, which I won't have time to talk about, but there's a slide on that in the presentation. Uh, And we accept all referrals uh, and require no assessment. And again, that's big because that's part Part of the reason why there's no crisis infrastructure is the only way for a mental health provider to bill a client previous has been you have to do an intake. Um, and if an intake is required, then that means lots of paperwork. It means asking lots of questions, getting lots of information. And if a person's in crisis, that is just not reality. Next slide, please. 
So basically, if you just look at, this is a, a picture of, you know, kind of the Stride Center living room. We're right across the street from Showers Plaza at City Hall. Um, and again, the purpose is to de-escalate, rest and detox. We have a lot of people who come in under the influence, not a problem. Worked very closely with the prosecutor's office when we first started, you know, and I think there were probably about a dozen charges where it said you can just automatically divert those individuals. And again, the purpose of Intercept Zero is to prevent people from actually having to come in contact with law enforcement. So if you have an alternative of a place to go, and again, with mobile crisis, you have somebody who can go out and meet with those individuals. It really is a way to prevent people from having to get into the system to begin with. Um, engaging with peer and crisis staff, assessing what they need and want. That's a really important part because oftentimes we look at these individuals who are in crisis and we think they need treatment. Well, what if they don't want treatment, right? Oftentimes that may not be the case. And what you'll see with some of the data is a lot of the people who are coming to see us have lots of different problems. And when they come, you know, the first thing they're really interested in is housing. I need a safe place to go. Food. Uh, employment. So it you have to be very, very focused on, on what they're motivated about. Um, and again, what we'll see with the data is people come back again and again because they get their needs met and then they, they want to follow up. And oftentimes it's to address their mental health or substance some point later on. Um, connect with resources and care. That's huge. And you talked about the silos. We partner with anybody and everybody. We do so much in terms of getting people into, whether it's an acute care hospital, substance residential, person who overdosed. We actually had one over the weekend where that individual um, on a Friday uh, wanted to get into substance residential, couldn't get in right away, could get in something middle of the night on Saturday morning, and we're able to provide transportation and get that person to that location immediately. So having that sort of on-demand resources and, again, working with a whole plethora of uh, resources is, has been really amazing. So, JFAC also heard from Marilyn Grimes with Courage to Change Sober Living. All right. So you basically asked me some questions when you sent me. So I think I gave you sheets. She's got them. The answer, but I'll, I'll tell you. Um, you asked what services Courage to Change uh, sober Living currently offers. Uh, basically, we're a low, low barrier, affordable, peer and staff supported transitional housing uh, to those suffering from substance misuse. And we have two women's houses and two men's houses at this point. We have 26 clients. We are in the midst of adding 10 more men's beds, which is really needed because we find that there is more men in need than there are women. Um, so our houses include a case manager for the men and a case manager for the women. And, um, they have curfews. We do drug testing. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So I was saying about the houses, we have uh, case managers for men and women, um, and they're monitored, although we don't have live-in staff. Um, we do have house meetings and they um, have to go to three meetings a week, um, do chores, they're assigned chores, um, and they have to have a job within two weeks of coming to us. We're really strict about that because that's part of the structure of getting back on your feet. Um, and then 
we do have a new software so that we actually can GPS their meetings and their housing. So when they check in and out of the house, we know they're there because we do have curfews, which are 11 through the week and midnight on the weekend. And then it also GPSs the 12-step uh, meetings, which are a requirement, which helps us, it helps them to be accountable and us keep track of, you know, that many people. Um, so uh, this, it, you ask, how are these services currently funded? Um, we're funded through grants. Uh, we apply for as many grants as we can. Bobby does, our treasurer. Uh, we also are funded through Sober Joe Coffee. So he sells coffee and then he gives us the funds he makes to use for housing for the, mostly for the clients if they need help. Our residents also pay rent. Um, our rent is $5.75 a month, which is really low considering, you know, it's everything except for the food. They do have to take care of their own food, but uh, that includes Wi-Fi and we have a computer in the houses. Uh, all their bedding we will supply. Um, they all have washer and dryers. So these are nice houses in different neighborhoods, just so you know. We rent houses, which is really makes it difficult, but the other thing is we're in different neighborhoods. So we have good neighbor policies. I have to throw this in, sorry, because I'm really proud of it. Um, because instead of going, you know, they're just learning how to live in a regular setting. Like we have one house in Highland Village. We have one on South Rogers. The neighbors don't know we're sober living. We don't advertise it. But I did have um, a gentleman that has a rental house next door to one of ours and came to me and said, could I rent to you? <laughs> because you take such good care of your houses and I never see any problems. During public comment, Monroe County resident Denny Wise shared their disapproval with the construction of a larger county jail. Oh, hello. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak. I will try to keep my remarks brief. Um, I'm a citizen of Monroe County. Um, I, in my opinion, the biggest thing that we can do to divert people from jail is not to build a bigger one. Um, this spring, the county council published a memo stating that it would consider funding a jail with a bed size of up to 400 beds. Given that the jail population has consistently been under 200 this year, I've been wondering why the county is planning on doubling the number of people incarcerated. As a member of the public, I'm confused by the county's simultaneous commitment to incarcerating fewer people and to building a larger jail. It seems to me that we're going to have to choose between these two future futures. Either more people are going to be incarcerated or fewer. We should build for the future that we want to create. And I believe that we are all here to want a future in which fewer people are incarcerated. So um, it would be good if we could set some goals for ourselves and hold ourselves to them. Given that a new jail will take approximately five years to build, how much do you think we can reduce the jail population by then, by 10%, 15%, 20%? If the county really and truly means to reduce the jail population, which is the whole point of diversion, uh, why are you planning for an expansion? Why are we planning to invest vital resources and infrastructure that at best will left be, be left unused and at worst will be used to incarcerate more people than we currently are? When it comes to jails, extra space is not a good thing because it will get filled. In the words of former jail commander Sam Crow, quote, if we build a bigger jail, kind of like building dreams, if you build it, they are going to fill it, end quote. 
It is contradictory to sit here and talk about diversion while planning a jail built on the pod system of indefinite expansion. We don't want pods, we don't want a bigger jail, and we don't have to go to a jail campus to get mental health care. Thank you very much. JFAC will meet again on August 7th, 2023. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on a canceled city council budget meeting from the media's outlet's Morning Bulletin. Dave Askins has more. The B-Square Bulletin sends out an emailed morning bulletin every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can sign up for the morning bulletin by visiting bsquarebulletin.com and clicking on the tab labeled subscribe. Here's an entry from the edition that was sent on Friday, August 4th, 2023. City Council budget meeting canceled. On April 25th, Bloomington's City Council held one of two so-called budget advance meetings to start preparing for the 2024 budget. The Council decided to cancel a second budget meeting, which was supposed to be held on June 13th. That means when the first departmental budget presentations start later this month, on August 28th, the Council will have let four months go by without any public discussion of its expectations for the 2024 budget. That's par for the course for this edition of the council. It's hard to tell that this is the fiscal body of the city based on the level of interest that council members show in the actual nuts and bolts of the budget. Some of those nuts and bolts involve the amount of revenue from taxes that the city government can expect to receive in 2024. There's two basic kinds of tax revenue that feed into the city's budget, property tax and income tax. The state recently released the calculations for the maximum levy growth quotient, which translate into an increase in property tax revenue of 4% in 2024 compared to 2023. Earlier this week, the state released the income tax numbers. It looks like the city of Bloomington will get about 3.64% more income tax revenue in 2024 compared to 2023. The 2024 budget will be the last one that outgoing Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton will present. It's a budget that the likely next mayor, Kerry Thompson, will have to live with. Based on the increases to tax revenue, it's hard to see how Hamilton's proposed 2024 budget could include more than a 4% increase for non-union employees. Non-union city employees received a 5% increase in 2023 compared to 2022. Based on the numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the CPI increased about 8% from December 2021 to December 2022. That number has come down to about 2.5% if you compare June 2022 to June 2023. It would be great if the next edition of the City Council, which gets sworn into office in 2024, would around this time of year make it a matter of public business to discuss tax revenue. It sure sounds boring, but it is more fun than you might think. Until next week, this has been Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin for WFHB. ¶¶
WFHB News is proud to partner with the Media School at Indiana University to offer internships and volunteer opportunities in broadcast journalism. Last month, the Media School hosted the High School Journalism Institute, drawing hundreds of students from all over the country to Bloomington for a week of intense workshops. WFHB hosted the podcasting workshop, where students produced new episodes of Activate, our weekly feature spotlighting people for positive change in our community. Every Monday during the month of August, you get to hear their work. This week's episode was produced by Ellie Braskow and Anthony Navarro. Ellie lives in Oakland, California, where she produces her own podcast called Teens in the Bay. Anthony is from Chicago, and you'll hear his voice in the intro to this week's episode of Activate, featuring Stephanie Shelton from Cancer Support Community of Indiana. Shelton says 40,000 Hoosiers will be diagnosed with some form of cancer this year. She needs volunteers to help support friends and neighbors with cancer through local events and programs. That's on a new student-produced episode of Activate, coming your way right now on the WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Stephanie Shelton from Cancer Support Community. Cancer Support Community is a nonprofit organization that provides free cancer supports to anyone impacted by cancer. This includes cancer patients, survivors, also friends and family members, and caregivers as well. I'm the development manager, so I do um, fundraising. I plan events, I go out into the community and do outreach. Um, I do presentations about CSC to help more people learn about our organization and the programs that are available. We have uh, many free programs, uh, but they're kind of categorized into five main areas. One area is counseling and support groups. Um, this provides a variety of different individual counseling opportunities as well as um, support groups. The all cancer support group, the friends and family members group, the breast cancer group, there are nutrition and wellness classes, cancer educational programs, social connections, and uh, direct patient assistance. The thing that most people enjoy about our programs is the chance to connect with other survivors. So they have a chance to share their stories, to learn from each other, um, and to, to really just support each other. And that's, you know, our, our company is Cancer Support Community, right? So all of our programs across the board are really about creating a, a strength in community um, for every, everyone who's faced cancer. We believe that no one should face cancer alone. Um, so everything that we do is focused around making sure that people know that they have resources available to them. I mean, who doesn't know someone who's, who's had a cancer diagnosis, right? Like, it's almost 50% of people in this, in, across the country, in the world probably. Um, I looked at the cancer statistics for Indiana earlier this year when I was writing a grant, and it was something like 40,000 people are expected to be diagnosed with cancer just in Indiana, 40,000 Hoosiers. And um, among those 40,000 Hoosiers, somewhere around 13 to 14,000 are expected to lose their lives to cancer. 
cancer does not discriminate. Cancer affects everyone. So I think that it's really important, especially since there's really no, there's treatments, but there's really no cure for cancer. Like, I think it's important for there to be supports around experiencing that. Um, some of the other things that I see that are really um, difficult on families, it's just the financial burden that it puts on a family, as well as the, the mental health, emotional stress, anxiety burden. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from participants like how meaningful that is, that they can come and talk to someone who really understands. If you feel passionate about cancer, if someone has been impacted in your life or if you've been impacted, I just want to extend the invitation to stop by our office at um, the corner of West Third Street and Landmark Avenue. Go to our website, cancer support SCIN for South Central Indiana.org. Cancer support SCIN.org. Or give us a call. Our phone number is 812 233 3286. Um, get a hold of us. We would love to have you come in and talk to you and um, share some volunteer opportunities. We have a, a comfort kit donation drive where we collect supplies to deliver to cancer patients in infusion centers. Uh, we have program volunteer opportunities. We have volunteers that come in and um, coordinate our walking club. Um, there's just all kinds of opportunities to be involved and um, there are many, many volunteer opportunities for our events as well. Again, I'm Stephanie Shelton from Cancer Support Community, so that no one faces cancer alone. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. Listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Harnuski Schneider in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Dave Askins. Activate was produced by Chad Carruthers, Michelle Moss, Ellie Brasco, and Anthony Navarro. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Brandon Blewett. And I'm Jean. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered 
listener-supported independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 